Well, good, uh, good morning, everybody. I think Ben did an awesome job. When he woke up this morning, he wasn't going to lead worship, but then he, he was. So, I don't know. Round of applause for Ben. I think, I think all the elders and the pastors would be, uh, would be proud of all the congregation uh, this morning. So, uh, as, as Lance mentioned, they're down in the desert for the elder planning weekend. Uh, I don't know everything that goes on there, but I know that they spend time praying and fellowshipping about uh, the flock of God at IBC uh, that they've been entrusted with. And, and uh, I'm just thankful that they have that time to uh, reflect and to plan for the future and to, to, to lead us. And so uh, we are taking a break from Pastor Tim's sermon series from First John this morning, and uh, we're going to jump into Third Corinthians. So if you guys have your Bibles, just kidding. The elders aren't here, so I can say that. Just kidding. Uh, no, we're going to be in Titus. Um, but last week, my, my brother got married. It was kind of weird. He's my little brother, 22, uh, and he got married. And uh, I got to give the best part of the whole, the whole event was the best man speech. Um, just kidding. And uh, I had 12 points to my best man speech. Three favorite memories with Timmy, three favorite things about Timmy, three favorite things about his wife, Ashley, and three pieces of advice. So I had 12 points. And uh, Amy said it was quite long. Uh, but everybody thought it was hilarious afterwards to come up to me and tell me, you know, I have three things that I liked about your speech. And uh, it, was, it wasn't that funny. But it was a good time. It was, it was great to celebrate. Uh, they are on their way back from Panama uh, today, of all places. So, uh, But I promised this morning that I really only have one point for us. Uh, that you need to remember. Hopefully you remember some more things, but if you leave with just one, I guess that would be okay. Pause with me for a moment. I want to reflect upon uh, Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. And I just want to read. So just listen and, and see if you can connect with these words. But I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keep sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I really don't do it. I decided not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions such as they are don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's unpredictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Can you guys relate with that? There's a, there's a problem in the, in the Christian life, and it's called sin. It does stuff like, hey, I love Jesus, but I, I don't really love my neighbor. Or I love God's Word, and I love reading it and studying it, but I don't really do what it says. Or sometimes you justify things in your mind saying, I know I shouldn't do this, but it feels right or it feels okay. Or you justify it by saying, you know, there's worse things that I could do or say or think. 
And then oftentimes it leads to questions about who we are and wondering, what's, what's wrong with me? Or we play the victim and we say, well, what's wrong with the world? Why can't I just get rid of sin? And uh, our, our, our letter this morning, our passage this morning, comes out of the book of Titus, where Titus addresses uh, many people, elders, old women, old men, young men, young women, and he gives us hope and comfort in expressly stating the reason for God's grace appearing so that it might redeem us from lawlessness and purify us so that we may be zealous for good works. Now, it's kind of hard because we're going to jump right into Titus and we've been studying Titus, actually just First John, and, uh, and we basically fall right in the middle of the, of the letter. Um, our passage this morning is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Uh, which we will read in a minute, but I do want to give you guys some background information about Titus before we go any further. Uh, it was a letter written by Paul uh, to Titus, and it's known as what's considered a pastoral epistle, uh, which goes alongside of First and Second Timothy. Um, the manner of Titus is very, is very businesslike. Paul, he gets down to business really fast. Um, the reason why we say this is that um, typically in Paul's letters, he he begins with an introduction and then, and then a thanksgiving where there's kind of a long thanksgiving about the person's faith or the, the, the gospel going forth. Uh, but really, Paul says to, to Titus, my true, child, my true child in the common faith, and then he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you could appoint elders. So there's an urgency to what Paul is saying to Titus. Um, he's writing to Titus who he left in Crete, uh, which is an island um, that was flavored with Greek mythology. Um, the, the Cretans believed that, that the god Zeus, the Greek god Zeus, had uh, lived there and became uh, sort of deified on the island of Crete. So they really held and cling to uh, this Greek mythology. It was also influenced by the Jewish thought um, from the circumcision party. And so there were people that were still saying, you've got to obey these laws and you need to be circumcised and you've got to do these things and still sacrifice and, and, and so on. And, and so uh, Paul is confronting these, these issues there. Uh, some of the major themes of Titus is this link of faith and practice or belief and, and behavior. So what we do or what we believe should flow out into, into what we do. And the composition of Titus, if you were to read it, you could probably pick, on it, pick up on it fairly quickly, is that he, he kind of has a pattern of command and then of rationale and then of charge. So he's, he talks to the elders he tells Titus to appoint the elders, and then he gives his rationale for it, and then he tells him, go and do this. And then where we find ourselves, we're in the second part, uh, where it's right conduct among the members of God's house, uh, which is chapters 2, verses 1 through 15. And his rationale for that, which we're going to look at more in depth this morning, is God's grace and mercy and what it provides for us. And so it's within this second section uh, about right conduct of members that we find ourselves this morning. And so let's go ahead and read that together, starting in verse 11. Does anybody need a Bible? If you do, you can raise your hand and Don will, will bring you one. Uh, but Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself 
a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Kind of my, my one major point for you guys this morning is that the appearance of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ, it teaches us how to live as Christians and is the means by which we live as Christians. The appearance of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ teaches us to live as Christians and is the means by which we live as Christians. And so first, how to live as Christians? Let's look at the passage. It says, uh, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that that the, the first way that we're to live as Christians is to say no to ungodliness and the worldly passions. Now, ungodliness is anything that's anti-God. We know from other lists throughout the letter that ungodliness can be considered arrogance, quick tempers, drunkenness, violence, greed, anxieties, worries, overcommitment, laziness, hopelessness, or idolatry. The list really goes on. Anything that is anti-God is considered to be ungodliness. In Titus 3.3, just after our passage, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. I think right now of uh, Pastor Tim's sermon series through First John where he talks so much uh, about how somebody, your brother says, oh, I love God, but yet he hates his brother. How can the love of God abide in that person? And I think uh, that, that that's very true for our passage here where, where if you believe in God and you say you love God, it should flow out into love for your neighbors, into love for your brothers and your sisters. And so living as a Christian means, first of all, to say no to that ungodliness. And then second, to say no to the worldly passions, which could be defined as the sinful impulses that are expressed through our body. The passions, one theologian writes, the passions are our basic physical and psychic instincts, such as our need for security, for fear in a healthy way, for hunger, thirst, desire for comfort, sleep, sleep or sex. These are inherent in our humanness and in and of themselves are not sinful. However, because of sin... The passions may be twisted and turned into sinful, sinful acts. Sex, an act intended for marriage between a man and a woman, becomes lust, fornication, adultery, sexual fantasy, or, or pornography. The need for food deviates into gluttony, an irrational and excessive consumption of what we eat. Indignation at injustice becomes anger, manifested in resentment, refusal to forgive, the compulsive need to make a point, loss of control, Rage, assault, violence, murder. The fundamental needs for clothing and shelter deviate into materialism, manifested by consumerism, lavish spending, hoarding of things, meaningless collecting. The need for rest is transformed into slothfulness, laziness, indifference, and a lack of self-discipline. And then healthy fear becomes timidity, cowardice, discouragement, paranoia, inertia, and an irrational sense of danger. You know, there's some, some things on that list that, that stand out to me. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm going to seminary uh, down in Escondido, and so I do a lot of driving these days. And uh, I, love, I really do love my drive. I drive through Garner Valley at sunrise. I'm drinking coffee. I'm praying. Or uh, I even sing a lot in my own car. I don't sing a whole lot, but nobody's there to listen except for God. So, uh, But... 
it's great, and I really, I really love it, and I really enjoy it. And I do think that after my time in seminary, I'll look back and be thankful for uh, the driving time that I've had. However, there, I think driving is also part of my sanctification because there's people out there that don't know how to drive. You guys, yeah? <laughs> do you think it's funny? I, get, I drive through Garner Valley, and I get down uh, to the 15 uh, in Temecula, and there's tons of people and traffic and people that pull in front of you. And they, especially this week. This week I was, like, being prepared for the sermon because I was, I mean, leaving school, like, three people just, like, they, like, don't even use the stop sign. So Charlie told me in between services that, you, that I need to pray for them. So I will, I will try and do that. But, uh, but there's an anger that comes up within me. And, uh, and it's one of those passions where, where I need to say no to, where I need to say no to uh, ungodliness and to worldly passions. The good news about living as a Christian in God's grace is that we get to say yes to things as well, to a new life that's offered through Jesus Christ. He says in his word after that, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the three adjectives that are used there are self-controlled, upright, and godly. Now to be self-controlled is to be sober-minded, much like the elders that are mentioned in, the, in chapter 1. It's to exercise self-control over the passions uh, that we talked about just previously. A godly life as well is marked by upright living where it's observable rightness in all aspects of life. The Cretans, their church was young. Uh, There wasn't yet established uh, leadership there, and so it was all the more important that the body of Christ, the members of God's household, uh, were living uprightly before the rest of the community. And so whether... It's you at the coffee shop or you at Fairway or driving down the mountain or at Costco in Temecula or at the beach or on vacation, wherever you might be, there should be an observable right living in your life. That's not what saves you, but it's a result of of Jesus' grace in your life. The third adjective that, that Paul used uh, in writing to Titus is uh, that of godly. And this kind of is the the bringing together the collision of faith in or knowledge of God and its visible outworking in life. Godliness, it's in, in Paul's term in the pastoral letters, which include First and Second Timothy, uh, is, is kind of the description of genuine Christianity, which echoes so much of what Pastor Tim has been preaching through um, in First John. It brings together knowledge of and faith in God and the observable response of lifestyle. Of lifestyle. So the way that we live, it, it, it does matter. We're supposed to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives before the unbelievers and in accordance with the rest of the household of God. Someone might ask in reading this passage, well, when am I supposed to do this? When are we supposed to pursue these things? And Paul would say the answer is now, he says, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Well, what's, what's the present age? And uh, in our passage, we're kind of, it's kind of bookended by, by two appearances of Christ. We have the, the first appearing, for the grace of God has appeared, which speaks about Christmas and Santa Claus and presents and Christmas trees, right? No, it, it talks about the incarnation of Jesus, where he was born of a virgin as a baby and was raised in godliness and then one day was crucified on the cross and resurrected from the grave. And so the first appearance of, of Christ, of God's grace, is that of the incarnation where, where Jesus Christ was made man. 
The second is what is talked about in verse 13, where we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the present age is, is, I mean, really the same age that Paul wrote to Titus, where we are after the incarnation of Christ and waiting Christ's second return, uh, where we will be glorified. Now, it's somewhat technical, but I think it's important enough to point out to you guys because uh, some may read verse 13 and think, oh, Jesus wasn't really God because it says waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, the Father maybe, and the Savior Jesus Christ. And so somebody could suggest to you that, that it's two people and that God wasn't really, uh, or that Jesus wasn't really God. And uh, I think... I think seminary has made me a little bit more nerdy. And I want to share with you guys a little bit of my nerdiness. Right now I'm taking Greek and Hebrew. Um, I've had some experience with Greek. And Hebrew has been uh, sanctifying and humbling and and, uh, really challenging, but but also good. And Greek I've had a little bit more experience with. Um, The the only reason I point that out to you is that uh, there's a technical aspect in the Greek text that I think you guys could learn even more. So do you guys remember... uh, Pastor Tim's hairy word from a few weeks ago. He told me to ask this question. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do you guys remember what it was, though? Does anybody remember? Propitiation. Does anybody remember what that means? Atonement. That's right. In our, our verse uh, in 14, we talk about that. And so, uh, if somebody comes to your door and they say, Jesus was not God, you can say, nope, Granville Sharps Cannon. You guys repeat that for me. Granville Sharp Cannon. Granville Sharp Cannon. That's right. In the Greek, when there is an article which is like the, uh, before, if there's one article before two nouns, it means one person. If there's two articles, it means two people. And, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, you guys can get this, though. I I think you can. Um, one, One article, one person. Two articles, two person. So if in our passage there were two articles, then we could say that God was the, the Father and Jesus was our Savior. But there's only one article because He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So one person. And you guys, this is important because if, if Christ was not God, then, then our faith, that, I mean, us here this morning would be worthless. And uh, it's a huge thing. And there are people that deny the deity of Christ and uh, that's con- considered heresy. God, Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. He was not seemingly a human, and he did not lay aside his deity when he became uh, when he became a human. He is God. And if you guys remember in the Gospels, when when the when Jesus said this, he said, "I am God." And uh, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him. This, you guys, is, is perhaps the most explicit and unique uh, decla- declaration of Christ's deity in all of the New Testament. And so I couldn't simply just pass that by. Do you guys remember what the, the canon is that I taught you guys? Or hopefully taught you guys? Granville Sharps Canon. One article, one person. Two articles, two people. So there's this tension where we live after the incarnation, but before Christ's resurrection or Christ's second coming. And there's that tension, much like Paul mentions in Romans chapter 7 that we read at the beginning about this struggle with sin and how are we to live and how I want to do good, but I, but I, but I don't. I want to honor 
my father and my mother, but then they show up and I can't, or I want to. Um, it's, it happens. Uh, or, I mean, you want to love your neighbor, but, but they're annoying and their dog barks all the time. I don't, I don't know. But, uh, but it's true where there's this tension where, where right when we want to, to do what's right, um, sin's right there. I like to use uh, an imagery of, of white knuckling where you want to sin, want to not sin so bad that you do it all in your own strength. And so you white knuckle it where you're like, I will not do this. I will not say that. I will not. Uh, and, and so on. And, and you know, um, in the end, as many of you guys probably can attest to, you fail and you fall to temptation, you fall to sin. And so the, the grace of God in its appearing, it teaches us how to live, but it also becomes the means by which we live. As Christians, and kind of most of our attention is on verse 14, which I want to read. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus Christ, he gave himself. He wasn't his life wasn't taken from him. It didn't catch him by surprise, but he willingly gave himself, gave his life over for us, for the people of God. He gave Himself on our behalf, which is that propitiation, hairy word that Pastor Tim has mentioned, where Christ was a substitute for us. He took, he took the punishment that we deserved and put it on Himself. Christ's death on the cross was an intrinsic part of God's plan of salvation. It was, it was woven into from, be, from the beginning. And His death was to redeem us. He, he bought us back. This reminds me of the prophet Hosea. Do you guys know Hosea? Where he was, was told by God, I need you to go and, and get yourself a wife. But not just any wife, but a wife that was, that was uh, in, in adultery, in, in, uh, in prostitution. And so he goes and he marries her. And then she leaves him again. And, and she's, she's, she's practicing this life of prostitution. And God says, go and, and buy your wife back. The wife that is already yours, go and buy her back. And you know... It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it, 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 I think it is a great picture, but, but terrible. That's, we, we are that wife where we have turned our backs on God. We have, we have chosen what is sinful, what is wrong. We, we have chosen to worship the, the creation of God rather than who created it. And, uh, and, and God tells us that that's who we are, where we have become prostitutes. And God and Jesus, through Jesus, he came and he redeemed us and he brought us back. I think that's a, a powerful picture of God's redemption. Another picture I think about is when, when the Israelites were freed of their slavery out of Egypt, where God used Moses to go and take them out of the grips of Pharaoh and to bring them through the Nile or through the Red Sea um, into the promised land. That's a great picture of God's redemption. Or I think of Paul's words in Romans where he talks about how we were once slaves to sin. Have, you, have anybody ever felt like a slave to sin before? But now we are servants of Christ Jesus, where we have been transformed and we are being purified. Take a look at, at verse 14 with me and uh, just kind of keep your eyes on that. And I want to read a passage from Ezekiel uh, chapter 37, verses 23. It says, listen to these words from the prophet Ezekiel about the people of Israel. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their, de- and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. 
My point for you guys this morning is that Jesus Christ is the one who does the purifying work in your life, not you. It's something that I've struggled with in my own life where I want to white-knuckle things and I will be holy, I will be righteous, I will do these things, and, and then I fail and I fall short. And I hope that that's a comfort to you this morning that, that He is sovereign in His grace, that He is the one that's responsible for sanctifying you, and that we should really give up on doing things in our own strength and put our hope in Jesus Christ to purify us. God's Word says that He redeems us from all lawlessness and that He is purifying for Himself a people for His own possession. I don't, I don't know how to communicate it more, but I think for me this is, is a, uh, it's, it's a big sigh in the Christian life where we're told to be holy, we're told to be righteous, we need to live this way, we need to say no to ungodliness, we need to say yes to self-control. And we think that it's really up to us to do that. But this morning I want to tell you that, that it's up to Jesus Christ. If it was up to us, we would still fall short. But God's grace that appeared through His Son, Jesus Christ, is the means by which we live. You have been set free from sin's bondage and are being purified. And because of that, looking at the end of our verse in 14, that we are to pursue a manifestly new manner of life, which is one that is characterized by good works. Good works are an, an outflowing, a result of the grace that we have in our life. Being a Christian is not about being a good person. There's no, there's no good person doctrine in the Bible. We were slaves to sin and God has made us slaves to righteousness. The Christian life, you guys, is supposed to be marked by self-control, righteousness, and godly living and to be characterized by a zeal for good works. And it would be, I think, worthwhile for you to think through this passage and ask yourself, am I, one, am I dwelling in God's grace? Have I been saved by God's grace? Am I counting on God's grace to do the sanctifying work in me? Or am I counting on myself or other people? And are you zealous for good works? Are you ready and able and willing to serve your neighbor at the most inconvenient times? Are you okay with that person pulling out in front of you when they didn't see the stop sign? Are you loving your neighbor even when you disagree with how well kept their yard is or the noise that comes from their dog? Are you resting in God's grace rather than trying to do it in your own strength? The struggle with sin is real. Paul tells us here that we live between, in this present age, between the incarnation of Christ and the return of Christ, and there's that tension. There's that battle. And so when you think, I've tried everything and nothing helps, I'm at the end of my rope, is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? And Paul, in the, in the end of Romans 7, he says this, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. 
God's grace teaches us how to live and makes it possible for us to live as Christians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and, and the words from Paul to Titus and, and, and just teaching us about your grace this morning for the, the grace that has appeared, for, for your grace that will appear. I thank you, Father, that you have taught us how to live and are the, the means by which we can live the Christian life. I pray for those that, that feel weak and, and tired who have been trying to do things in their own strength and that they would give up that desire and that they would put their faith in the grace through Your Son Jesus and that they would choose to allow Him to purify them rather than try and purify themselves. Father, I thank You for this morning and for the time to study Your Word and to learn from Your Word. And I praise You, Lord, for uh, the life that You have given to us through Your Son, Jesus, that He, uh, he came down to redeem us, to free us, to set us, set us free from sin and lawlessness, and that He gives us life and uh, can give us clarity in our Christian life. I thank You and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.